This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the award-winning historian Harold Holzer about his new book, The President's V.S. The Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. It's an impressive and disturbing book, Harold, raising the question you ask in your introduction, whether the unavoidable tensions between chief executives and the journalists who cover them protect democracy or threaten it. Before we get around to some sort of answer to the question, maybe you can provide us with a brief summary of the hostilities since the first days of the Republic. Begin with the poor press relations that infuriated Washington, Adams, and Jefferson. Well, first of all, thank you for having me back. Uh, Wonderful, as always, to talk to you. And yes, the relations have been poor from the founding days of the Republic, although George Washington lived in something of a fool's paradise for practically all of his first term, revered universally as he was during the Revolution. Uh, But then his own Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, decided uh, that the time had come to ensure democracy by importing a pro-Jefferson newspaper to the capital city of Philadelphia. And once established, it began predictably assailing Washington's policies. And at some point, after Jefferson left the cabinet, attacking Washington personally, Um, as someone who stole money from the treasury, gallivanted about in fancy carriages, uh, uh, was not quite the hero he was purported to be during the revolution. Uh, And it was all very painful to him. And he objected furiously, strenuously, but never publicly. But it established uh, the partisanship of the press that would endure for the next uh, 70 years or so, or really century. And um, it was no better under Adams. I think, by the way, uh, Washington probably um, decided not to run for a third term, not only to avoid uh, precedent-setting dictatorship, as he was concerned about, but also because he simply couldn't take the press abuse anymore, as he put it. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, his, his friend from revolutionary days, opined later that he thought Washington had abandoned the presidency specifically because of the press attacks. Uh, That is somewhat shrouded in mystery. But Adams, picking up on things, had a brief honeymoon with the press, and then um, cracked down on criticism by signing the sedition law, still the most onerous and the most restrictive measure uh, the federal government has ever undertaken against the press, under which at least 17 prosecutions were launched against anti-federalist newspapers who merely had ridiculed the president. And Adams was all in, um, identifying newspapers to his attorney general and secretary of state that he wanted uh, prosecuted. They were all tried before all federalist judges because no, the presidents had been federalists. And of course, all the judiciary was federalist. And some uh, journalists wound up imprisoned. Uh, fined, uh, driven out of business, uh, and a couple were um, actually uh, exiled from the United States under the terms of the sedition, the alien law that was passed at the same time as the sedition law. Thomas Jefferson, um, in the same manner in which he criticized slavery but held slaves of his own, criticized the sedition law but mostly because it used federal power to crack down against journalists. He had no objection to state courts pursuing critics for libel after they had published uh, the kinds of things that that had upset Adams, but in this case, Federalists attacking Republicans. And uh, as President uh, Jefferson was as abused as Adams had been and uh, ended his life in in his famous uh, series of correspondence with Adams and Lafayette and others saying things like, I now read only one newspaper 
and in that one, chiefly the advertisements, because they contain the only truth to be found in a newspaper. So I would say all the founders uh, had their problems with the press. Mention the letter that that uh, Jefferson wrote that you compared to Voltaire, the one where he actually got a letter from his. And I don't think I actually I, I did the story justice in the book. I, I've concluded recently because the the question came from a precocious seventeen year old uh, who wrote to Jefferson from Virginia and said. Can you please tell me the paths to creating a successful newspaper? Because I intend to be a newspaper publisher someday. By the way, 19 years later, he would become a newspaper man, and eventually he would found the uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer. So he was serious, became a United States senator later in life. But Jefferson uh, took a uh, highly satiric tone on when he replied that uh, ideally a newspaper, any newspaper, should be devoted to the truth. But if you, uh, if you pursue the truth, you're not likely to be terribly successful because readers are not accustomed to or desirous of reading the truth. So he gave him sort of a three-step plan. One, have a section that's just the truth. Two, have a section that's rumors. And three, have one that's lies. And the lies will probably be the most uh, successful part of the paper, but at least you'll feed all of your potential audiences. It's a great letter. It is a great letter, and he expected the part of the paper devoted to the truth to be very small. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. But what begins to happen then as we proceed through the 19th century? I mean, talk a little bit about Jackson, and then talk quite a lot about Lincoln. I mean, you're an eminent Lincoln scholar. You've written many books about various aspects of Lincoln's life. And the Lincoln's relations with the press were troubled. They were fraught, to be sure. Well, I'll start with Jackson. So he, he rides into the presidency on the wings of, uh, you know, this deeply partisan press culture, uh, uh, the kind of press that had uh, attacked his wife for being a bigamist, and by the way, attacked John Quincy Adams well for having sexual relations with her husband before their marriage. So both wives were attacked for the first time in, in one of their two encounters for the presidency. Jackson does something that no one had thought to do, unless you consider Hamilton, who is Washington's Treasury Secretary, a journalist. And indeed, he, he wrote anonymous editorials throughout the Washington era. But Jackson openly um, brings journalists into his official family as members of the now famous kitchen cabinet, which he greatly preferred to his his uh, uh, Senate-confirmed cabinet, including Isaac Hill, a newspaper friend of his who became chancellor of the currency, uh, and others. Uh, one became uh, one became secret uh, secretary of uh, uh, I'm sorry, postmaster general Amos Kendall. He imported. Newspaper man Thomas Ritchie from uh, Kentucky to be to found an official administration newspaper, uh, which Jackson then favored with government printing contracts and exclusives. And Ritchie, in turn, kind of moved into the White House and became speechwriter, message writer, veto message writer, and uh, in that way, Jackson controlled the entire culture of the press, and they actually created a network of Democratic Party newspapers kind of predating the wire services that came into being later in the century. Jackson um, punished opposition newspapers at one point. This will sound painfully familiar to, to modern Americans. He actually, he and his postmaster general actually discussed the efficacy of uh, maybe not mailing uh, opposition newspapers in uh, two too quickly and interfering with the mail in order to get only their political message across. So Lincoln, meanwhile, is coming of age in this period. He begins his newspaper life um, really as a teenager reading newspapers when he shared a home with his parents. He read the, the Missouri Democrat, which was an anti-democratic paper, and the Missouri Republican was a democratic paper. We won't even go there, but it gets complicated. Um, and when he becomes postmaster of New Salem, Illinois, 
his first home as an adult. Um, it's a town like many Western villages populated by people who'd come from elsewhere. So to stay connected to their roots and their families, they often subscribe to out-of-town newspapers. And after Lincoln becomes postmaster, they find their newspapers suddenly uh, being handed to them used, having been obviously opened and read and refolded sloppily. And they realize their postmaster is getting first dibs at the newspapers. And that's Lincoln's political education, reading all the papers that come into uh, to New Salem. Uh, and then he begins contributing to Whig newspapers from that perch in New Salem. Yes, Lincoln did have a fraught relationship with Democratic newspapers, but he had a very close relationship with Whig and later Republican newspapers, um, principally in his later hometown of Springfield, but also in Chicago, Illinois, and throughout Illinois. He visited editors whenever he traveled on legal or political business. And by the time he runs for president, he has a uh, reliable, loyal, deeply committed network of editors around the country who do the campaigning for him. What changes, of course, is that the Civil War brings new pressure on the Lincoln administration to limit seditious information. And particularly after the Battle of Bull Run, uh, which the Union unexpectedly loses, uh, concurrent with that was the expiration of the first 90 and 100 day volunteers in the Union Army. And when Democratic newspapers in the North begin complaining uh, about a service in a lost cause and urging young men not to re-enlist, the administration and the military cracks down, arrests Democratic editors in New York and New Haven and Illinois and Indiana. Um, and at the same time, he's closing down newspapers in the border states to prevent additional territory from joining the Confederacy. So I would say next to Adams and the sedition crackdown, um, in intent, although Lincoln's crackdown in a sense follows the Constitution, which says that the writ of habeas corpus can be suspended without, um, can be suspended during a rebellion. The numbers are huge under Lincoln. More than 200 newspapers shut down, editors detained, arrested, um, thrown into military prisons, really throughout the Civil War with interruptions only for um, election periods, which Lincoln seemed to regard as sacrosanct. So it was a pretty brutal record on freedom of the press. And during his presidency, which papers, there, there are some papers that support him all the way through the Civil War, but a lot of papers do not. Yes. Well, you know, every news, every town um, from small towns uh, upward have a Democratic and a Republican paper in the North. New York is different. It has, uh, you know, many, many newspapers, up to 30 if you count foreign language newspapers of the Civil War era. But in New York, Lincoln could depend on the New York Times to be pro-administration after it ended its flirtation with William Seward his Secretary of State, it could generally rely on the New York Tribune and, and its editor, Horace Greeley, to be anti-slavery and pro-union, although Greeley was a tough guy to keep uh, in line and ultimately um, tried to see Lincoln ditched as a candidate for re-election to a second term. Uh, conversely, the New York uh, world uh, was anti-Lincoln, pro-democratic, vicious, to Lincoln in 1864. Lincoln actually shut it down in June of 1864, the, an election year, when it printed a bogus presidential proclamation. But to show the extent that politics and the press were so inexorably linked in this period, in that year, 1864, Henry Raymond is not only the editor of the New York Times, he's the chairman of the Republican National Committee. And there is no conflict perceived or stated. He's also a Republican candidate for Congress from Manhattan, from Manhattan. And the publisher of the New York World, August Belmont, is the chairman of the DNC. So quite a different structure. Uh, Raymond was the first editor of Harper's Magazine, for which I was the editor for many years. And during the, he was not only the editor of the New York Times, but also the editor of the uh, Harper's Magazine at the same time he's chairman of the 
Republican committee. He's also he's, he's also he's also a member of, of uh, the state assembly in Albany. And I think he may have served as speaker. Uh, I think at he one did. Point. Yeah. In fact, I once uh, when I um, introduced my Lincoln in the press book at the New York Times. I said to Arthur Sulzberger, or at least publicly said at the reception, you might have become the Shelley Silver of uh, the modern era. That's the, I guess, disgraced period, uh, speaker of the New York State Assembly at the time. He wasn't pleased. He said, get out. I think it was a joke. Reading your book, two things occurred to me. One is the, the language can be, which was true of the election of 1800 between uh, Jefferson and Adams, and again in the Jackson and Lincoln administrations, the, the, the language can be very vitriolic. Um, I mean, the, the thing that we complain about these days is nothing new. Absolutely not. I mean, you're right. You, you pick the three elections where the vitriol uh, reached peak levels, Adams, Jefferson in 1800, um, the, uh, John Quincy Adams, Jackson in 1824, and um, uh, Lincoln in both of his elections. And he once, Lincoln once sort of sadly said, um, in, in fact, I think he said it on election night in 64, I seem to have always been engaged in election campaigns where the vitriol level is so high, and I, a mild person, he kind of regretted it, although he was clearly you know, a part of that, of that culture and that system. But yeah, he was called vicious names. Yeah, he was called a lout and a boor, uh, the same a kind gorilla, of, yeah. a gorilla. I mean, the same kind of language that the New York Times these days applies to Trump. Probably worse, I would say, but we can get into our comparative uh, notes later. But yeah, <laughs> it was open warfare. The difference is that the journalists, the journals identified openly and proudly with political parties and movements. It wasn't as if they were all claiming to be covering the news, uh, all, you know, all the news that was fit to print, that's fit to print or broadcast, which they do today, even though the partisanship has become kind of reestablished in the, uh, in the cable news era. Talk about now, let's move forward to Teddy Roosevelt, TR, who's famous for his, uh, friendliness with newspaper reporters and having them into the family that in the same kind of way that Jackson did. Yeah, Roosevelt uh, was a master of press relations. Um, some of the White House correspondents later said he was the master public relations man of all time. And this was in the infancy of the public relations profession. Um, he was also the perfect person for his era. Might not have been as successful um, during the openly partisan press age. But this was now an age when Roosevelt uh, rose to the presidency at the turn of the century. It was an age of front page sensational journalism. And rather than uh, editors being famous, White House reporters were the ones that needed to be uh, um, romanced. And T.R. really went at it. He thought he should be on the front page of every paper every day. And the same way he believed he should be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral, it was famously said. So he had the press into the Oval Office every day while he was being shaved. So he was a notorious multitasker. He couldn't just be shaved. He had to hold press conferences while he was being shaved. And the journalists loved it. They, they uh, exchanged uh, you know, barbs with him. He jumped up and down while he was in the barber's chair with those straight razors sometimes held perilously close to his neck. But at the same time, he was wooing the front page writers. He was also um, becoming quite close to the long form journalists uh, who wrote the investigative pieces that gave ballast to his progressive program. People like Lincoln Steffens and Ida Tarbell and Upton Sinclair were regulars at the White House and uh, um, and uh, their books and their articles uh, for for magazines helped arouse the public against Standard Oil, the meatpacking industry, etc. Well, and and T.R. generally enjoyed the conversation and company of reporters and writers because he is himself a, a very good writer. 
uh, uh, has a talent for words and a belief in words enormously gifted of course and in fact in the in the famous speech uh, to the gridiron club at which he denounced all of these magazine writers who had meant so much to his early program as muckrakers not meant to be a compliment um it, the press was wounded by what he had said what did tr do he he made sure that the speech was published in a magazine and he wrote magazine articles whenever a cause uh, interested him. He didn't like uh, Uncle Remus and the romancing about animals. He thought animals should either be hunted or consumed. So he went on a toot about that. But wait a minute. He, he, he had something like 25 pets in the White House. Yeah, but he didn't think they should be like Br'er Rabbit. They shouldn't have yeah. personalities. Okay. I don't know why it interested him, but he was against these nature romancers and uh, spent uh, six months um, writing about that. And, you know, he ended up as a magazine columnist, even considered the idea of becoming the editor of a New York Daily, and thought, maybe I should have done it. I would have been good at it. <laughs> absolutely, it was in his blood. Yeah, he was good at a lot of things. The, all right, let's go, let's go forward. Now we're coming into the 20th century, and we're beginning to get uh, – technological change that, that make a great deal of difference. Start with FDR and, and the, the new technology of the radio. Could, may I just tell one story that precedes FDR because it's sort of a yeah, mea culpa. Sure. I, feel I must confess to. So I wrote a lot about Woodrow Wilson. Um, he seems dull by comparison to TR, but he did organize the first news conferences, the first real news conferences. Anyway, um, we all know that the press was not given uh, information about his declining health toward the end of his administration. But there was another story. He took a big press contingent to the to the Paris Peace Conference after World War One. Um, and although he didn't, he kept them in the dark about a lot once they got there. It was the biggest press delegation from any country. And there was a moment when Wilson dropped out of sight and the press was not told what the problem was. In fact, he had come down with a, a serious bug and by some accounts was raving and very high fevered and might have even been in peril of losing his, his life. The book is so big that I had to cut some um, anecdotes and that was one I didn't include in the book because what happened is Wilson came down with the Spanish flu. And I thought to myself at the time, not too presciently, who would want to hear about a pandemic? We're never going to have one of those again. So I was, I, I cut it from the book. So that was my mea culpa story. Yes, but the press uh, protected Wilson. I mean, they, they, they didn't uh, give out the news that he had the Spanish flu. No. Well, they didn't know about the flu, but they certainly knew that something serious yeah. had happened when he, when he took ill during the barnstorming for the league. Uh, I don't think they ever really got an honest report from Wilson's doctors about the stroke. But yeah, it was definitely the first example of the press, and not the last, of the press covering up the details of a presidential illness. All right. I mean, they also covered up the illnesses of FDR. They did. They did. Um, one of the reasons I was inspired to write the book is a, a little photograph that I found in my office at Roosevelt House and Hunter College, which, as you know, is FDR's New York City home. It's a photograph of Roosevelt using a, a railing, a special railing to, to hoist himself down the front steps of that house, which he did throughout the 11 years that he lived there after he had recovered from polio. He taught himself to kind of imitate walking and to get about on the arm of his son or using these rails or crutches. And it was taken by, I learned, by a daily news photographer, but it was not published in the daily news because it showed the steel braces under FDR's shoe. And the more I looked, the more I realized that the, without any edict from, from the government or any threat of, at the beginning at least, of excluding photographers who behaved otherwise, the, the White House photo corps just did not take usually and certainly did not submit or publish pictures that showed Roosevelt in his wheelchair 
or being hoisted in and out of automobiles or 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 trains a kind of a gentleman's agreement to protect the uh, true extent of his disability uh, they also didn't probe into his extramarital love affair they did not i'm not sure how much they knew about it but he always had women around him when they had hyde park press conferences so no this was a, a but i just find the photography thing extraordinary there are only about four or five pictures of roosevelt in his wheelchair in the fdr library at hyde park that is an astonishing degree yeah. of self-censorship and later censorship by the press office what were his relations in general with the press they were very good were they not i mean didn't he make a spectacular use of the radio and the fireside chats absolutely yes to both part question and they are separate because um with the radio he kind of goes around the press he's the first president well since wilson experimented not too successfully with newsreels silent newsreels he goes around the press to present himself directly to the people in these mere 28 fireside chats if you you know i used to talk to my parents about the the their image of roosevelt and um they thought he'd been on the radio as often as jack benny and burns and allen he was just so forceful and so perfectly attuned to the modulated skill of broadcasting that he was enormously effective but he was also effective with the press corps he held news conferences two times a week for 12 years and that amounted you know with some variables when he was traveling but there were 998 news conferences generally off the record but roosevelt would put things on the record so they had if if they if requested and if he thought it was a good idea which was often so generally very open very jolly he invited them to dinners um to use the white house swimming pool which by the way um was funded by the new york daily news by subscription to build a pool for roosevelt so he could continue his exercises um which is a pretty amazing amazing thing and uh you know they were able to use the tennis court he invited them on white house picnics to he was the first president to invite the press routinely to state um to receptions at the white house but having read 998 transcripts i will say that there were some trumpian moments in those press conferences that i found pretty shocking um he would say to some reporters that was a stupid question go stand in the corner or put on a dunce cap and once when he got angry at the aforementioned new york daily news when it attacked him for the peacetime draft um and was generally uh i had become quite isolationist um roosevelt got hold somehow of a german uh military cross the the highest medal for german soldiers and he kind of ostentatiously presented it at a press conference to the Daily News White House reporter. And I will say that the press did not think that was funny, that he would present an enemy medal to, to a reporter because his newspaper's publisher had turned against the administration. And he railed against the publishers. He hated the publishers. He just liked the journalists. All right, let's go, go, go next. Do beginning now to get within the frame of my own memory. Let's go to Jack Kennedy and the and the, the new technology of television. And I think that this is when the relation between the the press and and the president really begins to take on transformational change. I mean, dem democracy is based on the value and meaning of words and the. Uh, once you get into images, uh, it's a whole different ball game. I mean, that's the point that McLuhan makes in the '60s. And Kennedy had certainly learned um, that the medium is the message. To be a little bit McLuhan-esque, in during the debates with Nixon, where he, yeah. you know, apparently people who heard it on the radio thought Nixon won, and people who watched on television believed that uh, that Kennedy had won the debates. So he parlayed that. I mean, Eisenhower had done the first live news conferences, but had been kind of sour 
and reluctant about it, and dry, of course, as was his nature. But Kennedy, the guy who had designed his, uh, his, who had told him what to wear and what lighting and makeup to use for those debates, came right in and designed a set for the press conferences. Most people who know that he was a star of his press conferences may not realize that they were not staged at the White House. They were held instead at the new State Department Auditorium, which was a theater style uh, site with raked seating and uh, they hung a blue curtain. They built a lectern with a presidential seal that had never been used before Kennedy. Now it's, you know, standard operating procedure. And it was, uh, as one reporter groused, it was like watching Kennedy making love at Carnegie Hall. And I think a few of them, like Alistair Cook, uh, who was writing for, I guess, was covering for the BBC at that point, didn't like it. They thought it was theatrical and insubstantive. But uh, I think eventually, when they started getting recognized on the street and their lecture fees increased, they bought in. We can be, we can be stars of this medium, too. And some, like Sander Van Oker and others, did become stars. So Kennedy, again... Great looking, great voice, and really brilliant on his feet, um, became the star of uh, this next step in technology. Again, the right person at the right time. But he enjoyed, I mean, he also liked the company of, of journalists. I mean, he did. He, he had yeah. a lot of pals. Well, he had been a journalist, post war journalist. Um, yeah, and he, and I think the fact that he had deep friendships with Ben Bradley and others and played golf with them. Uh, there was another. There was a new level of protection against what one White House reporter later said his resumption of his bachelor days. It's kind of a a very um, a light touch there. And they also protected him. I mean, he his appetite for women was uh, voracious. And also his his illness was considerable. I mean, he yeah. was much on. I was a kid at the time, although I was a big Kennedy follower. So. You know, we all thought he had a bad back and a quaint rocking chair and a doctor named Lincoln. That was no small thing for me uh, to tend to him. But uh, nobody realized that he had Addison's disease or was taking as many as much medication as he was taking. Right. And, and again, the, the, the press corps protects him from that. Absolutely. Although I was... Um, I was surprised at several things when I went back and read the, you know, watched all the press conferences again and read the background from people who were there like Sorensen and Salinger. First of all, he prepared very anxiously for those press conferences. They weren't uh, reflective of some kind of spontaneity only. Of course, he had a great wit, but he also was very well briefed and uh, rehearsed in the best sense for those for those uh, uh, press conferences. But he also pushed back against press scrutiny. He complained to publishers. His father complained about to Henry Luce when they didn't like coverage. He canceled his subscription to the Herald Tribune when he didn't like their editorials. Of course, his wife kept sneaking in the style section, so he ultimately relented. Um, and uh, during the both of the crises with Cuba, Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, he kept information from the press. He, he, and he gave a, a speech at the New York Publishers, I'm sorry, the American Publishers Association at the Waldorf, in which he lectured them, reminding them that in his view, national security was more important than freedom of the press. And he said, I would like, I was going to call my speech tonight, the president's versus the press. And only because I and good nature did I change it to the president and the press. And that's why I, I changed my own title of my book in the reverse way. I was going to call it the presidents and the press, but I wanted to, in the spirit of Kennedy, make it a little more contentious. Essentially, Kennedy is, is portrayed in the press as a hero. Oh, yes, I think so. And the press is also inclined to believe it, at that point that the... Uh, Certain things should be off the record because of the national security. I mean, that's the way uh, the the press first approached the Pentagon Papers and under the Johnson administration. And if they didn't think that Johnson's um, that national security should be uh, uh, 
paramount, Johnson would remind them in some of those um, four-letter word-ridden tapes in which he calls uh, uh, broadcast journalists and uh, editors and curses about the reporters who have, uh, you know, he claims are, well, enemies of the people in so many words. Yes, he did. I mean, I mean, where we are now, as far as I can see, really begins to become more apparent, starting with, with Johnson. I agree. That's a turning point. And of course, through Nixon, we're talking about altogether, you know, yeah, nearly yeah. 10 years of real battles with the press, right. the white, between the White House and the press. Yeah, well, t talk about those 10 years. I mean, the credibility gap with with uh, Johnson and, and then and, and Nixon's relations to the press are truly hostile on both sides. Yeah. I mean, Johnson wanted to have good relations with the press, and he did have good relations with some uh, some journalists and editors he'd known for, for years and years. Um, but um, he believed that the Eastern establishment in journalism was hostile to him because he was not John Kennedy, because he had somehow become president uh, with the tragedy of, of, uh, of um, Kennedy's assassination. And then, of course, um, with, uh, with the escalation in Vietnam, as you point out, the they take an innocuous phrase like the budget gap and the press introduces this idea of a credibility gap, which Johnson does nothing to help. I mean, he even lies to the press about whether he was drinking beer while speeding in, uh, in, in his car near his ranch in Texas. So the press comes not to believe him. He goes through press secretaries, runs them ragged. The loyal ones like Bill Moyers get bleeding ulcers. And, um, the press generally uh, simply does not believe him. And um, in a kind of maudlin way, he blames the press uh, press coverage of him for his ultimate decision not to seek a full uh, a second term in 1968. Of course, I will say one thing for Johnson, and uh, I, I appreciate this, is that he never constrained the press from covering the Vietnam War. Um, the, the press was not given as much access to Afghanistan and Iraq as as the as they were given to Vietnam, and um, had it not been for that openness, Walter Cronkite would not have been able to do his famous documentary at which he pleaded uh, for an honorable end to the war. A documentary that Johnson watched uh, in the White House and then turned to his aides and said. If we've lost Cronkite, we've lost Middle America, and kind of realized that the world was closing in on him at that. Point. And that's the spring of '68, and that's when he comes to the decision not to run. Exactly. You know, I think it's in March '68. The, the, After uh, doing reasonably well in the New Hampshire primary. Yeah. People think he lost it, but he didn't. He actually won as a write-in, but by so little against uh, Eugene McCarthy that he thought the writing was on the wall and he'd had it. And Nixon, of course, is a totally different story. Nixon. Well, well let's get yeah. to Nixon. Cause that, that is truly transformative in your, in your analysis. The, the, uh, that's where we begin to get to where we are now. It's extraordinary how many of these presidents are either the right person in the wrong, in the right place or the right person in the wrong place or vice versa. But Nixon, um, who has built his entire career from 1946, congressional race through his Senate race against Helen Gahagan Douglas uh, on the idea of antipathy toward the press and never forgot that when he made his most important political statement defending himself against charges that he'd had a slush fund, uh, which raised money for him to send Christmas cards, horror of horrors, that when he had to give his famous uh, speech, uh, uh, the checker's speech, he had to buy the time. The press was not going to cover it for free as they would, as they would so easily in the cable world. So he, more antipathy, more hatred of the press, um, and of course believes the press didn't treat him well in 1960, and um, when he ran for president the first time. So by the time he makes his comeback, it's armed with this hardened view of the press. The press has not given access to his campaign operation as they had in 1960. And when he becomes president, he immediately sicks his vice president, uh, Spiro Agnew, armed with speeches written by the likes of, uh, of uh, Buchanan, Pat Buchanan, 
to attack the nattering nabobs of negativity, all these purple yeah, yeah. anti-press things. Uh, so yeah, he's then he based that's part of his policy is to beat down the press and to deny them broadcast licenses as if he can. And then of course, the the age of anal analyzing, uh, you know, talking heads on TV and uh, the idea of cable starts to take root and. Uh, and Johnson is attacking the, uh, I'm sorry, Nixon is attacking the idea of reporters daring to comment on his policy. So it's a toxic environment. And then, as you, as you noted, the Pentagon Papers, the enemies list, and ultimately Watergate, and the press can't wait to do him in, which, uh, which I think uh, the destruction of his presidency, which of course is self-induced, but largely brought on by journalistic scrutiny. See if we can quickly move from through Reagan, Clinton, and uh, the two George Bushes and Obama, and and get to get to uh, Trump because with with the Reagan election, the politics becomes representative not in the political sense but in the theatrical sense. I mean, it's show business. Yeah, um, what a great way of. What a great way of saying it, the ultimate show business presidency, and the press kind of took it. They yeah. uh, they allowed Reagan to be over-rehearsed, to stick to one theme a day, to not comment when he pretended not to hear questions. Uh, but we have to remember also that the sympathy that was evoked by the assassination attempt on him was considerable, and his grace in that period and his courage um, earned a lot of admiration and a, and a lot of free passes uh, from the press. The the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, intensified that uh, that attitude. One And both Bush administrations, really, one message a day, limited access, even though mistakes were made that could not be protected by a restricted press. Clinton was a fascinating subject to go back and deal with, and I'm sure we all remember the details. But he... he believes that he made a lot of mistakes. He's the one president I interviewed for the book, by the way. Believes that he made some mistakes uh, focusing on the wrong issues during what should have been his press honeymoon. Um, although, to paraphrase Jody Powell when he spoke about Jimmy Carter, he didn't not only didn't get a press honeymoon, he didn't even get a one-night stand. It's a great line. No, I mean, no, I mean, they... they Republicans are beating up on him right from day one. I mean, and they kind of consider him a lout and a vulgarian right. from from Arkansas, right? And, and the, he's not, he's in bad taste. But what does he do in the first week? He orders the door between the White House press room, which is now since the Nixon days, where the FDR pool had been in the basement. He orders the door locked that connects that room directly to the corridor outside the new press secretary, D.D. Myers. He knows that that was a mistake now, and it really poisoned the early relationships. I mean, you don't start your administration by having Helen Thomas of the UPI, who's been there for 30 years, banging on the door and saying, let me in, I won't be locked out. That was not good. And uh, what did it lead to? In his view, and he blames himself in part, it leads to Travelgate. It leads to um, the investigations around um, Whitewater and the thing he still seethes most about, and that is the press bouncing around the idea that uh, his close friend and aide Vincent Foster's death was covered up in some way. That really pained and infuriated him and kind of poisoned the well. And it, I think, encouraged him to tell untruths when his affair with Monica Lewinsky was exposed. He even lied to Jim Lehrer. Who lies to Jim Lehrer? Well, <laughs> Trump would be happy to lie to that's Jim true. Lehrer <laughs> if Jim Lehrer was still right. there. The, uh, you know, it's interesting. I talked to Jim before he died about the book, and he told me not only does he not blame Clinton for lying. In fact, that was the first lie. He was at, uh, It was the day that the Monica story broke on um, one of those um, – smarmy underground um, websites, I guess, the Drudge Report. And um, Lehrer asked him a direct question, and Clinton said no. I mean, his definition of an affair, as we know, was very uh, specific. 
And Lara said later, or said to me for the, when I was interviewing him for the book, he said, um, you know, he was the best communicator I've ever interviewed in my entire career. I'm sorry we had that moment. I kind of understand, but boy, was he brilliant. And uh, Oh, no. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I, I've had a number of encounters with Clinton myself and, and, uh, and would agree with that. The, um, let's now talk some about the question that you ask at the beginning. What, what are the tensions between the chief executive and the journalists? Uh, do they protect or threaten democracy? I mean, what kind of a media environment do we have today? And what kind of the journalists have become stars of the show in their own right, and they have their own selfish motives for playing the kind of gotcha yeah. journalism game. And the president has political motives, and they 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 aren't the same. And I, I, it it strikes me that we've lost some sense of a common interest on the part of both the press and the uh, and the president as to what is good for the country. I think that's right. I think where we have a kind of a combination of uh, of uh, negativity and negative factors here, we're back to the very uh, blatantly partisan journalism of the 18th and 19th century. By the way, there were stars like Porcupine in Porcupine's Gazette, who wrote terrible things about Thomas Jefferson and praised George Washington. Um, and I dare say people who who were astonished when the weekly newspapers that they subscribed to became twice weekly and then thrice weekly, I think they reacted thinking that the press is as immediate as uh, we do now when we see things posted on social media or on, new, on newspaper website platforms. Um, they thought that they were being exposed to breathtaking immediacy. So I think we're back to partisan, to partisanship, especially on cable news. Um, and we have still the lingering gotcha journalism um, that became so prevalent in the Nixon era. I have to say, though, isn't it amazing that Bob Woodward, the lead journalist in the Watergate expose, I, always, I say in my book, he gave rise to the dreams of generations of journalists who wanted to get uh, movie deals and be played on the screen by Robert Redford. And 50 years later, who writes the most scathing indictment of a president who is oblivious to a pandemic? Uh, uh, the same Bob Woodward, um, 50 years later. That ought to keep the young guys uh, um, wondering what, how they missed that ball there. Uh, he has amazing access. So there is still a role for investigative journalism. In the end, I think to answer the question, I still think it's healthy for the democracy to have tough questions. Um, I, think, I think what we need to restore is the civility of the simple and the honesty of the White House briefings. I think those are essential. Um, and having served as a press secretary, at least at the congressional level and campaign levels for Senate um, and mayor, I think the idea of telling the truth and saying I don't know when we don't know the answer to a question is really healthy. So part of this is on the press secretaries and their operations as well. They've got to be honest. Um, and then I think we get to a different equilibrium. Well, I mean, I see that there's also the problem of uh, who runs the country. I mean, I mean, we seem to have gotten to ourselves into a position where the, the media thinks that it runs the country <laughs> and not the president. I mean, there's a wonderful scene in, in Gore Vidal's novel, Empire, where uh, Teddy Roosevelt is president and William Hearst, Randolph Hearst, comes to visit him. And, and uh, Hearst gets to the meeting in the cabinet room in the White House first and sits in the chair where T.R. usually sits. And then when... TR comes in, uh, he takes a lesser place at the table, and eventually Hearst says to him, you, you have to understand, uh, Mr. Roosevelt, that I run the country, you don't. <laughs> right. But I think, I, I, I think some of that attitude has gotten into 
uh, you know, the New York Times. <laughs> yeah. Um, listen, it, it demonstrably not true that the media runs the country. The yeah. president still sets the agenda, and yeah. even if there is complete yeah. dysfunction in the relationships between the branches of government, and by which I mean um, what the new senator from Alabama said, the three branches of government are the White House, the House, and the Senate, which shows you the level of incoming senators. Um, just taking those three branches of government, if there's dysfunction, the president still rules by the fiat we call executive order. Twas ever thus from the Emancipation Proclamation on to today's sort of meaningless executive order as we speak uh, today um, that the United States should get the first American vaccines. I don't even know what it all means, but uh, COVID vaccines. So the president can still set the agenda. But investigative journalism is a time-honored thing, and I think it will continue, and it should continue. And openness is the best, the best response. I think the, the greater challenge is the four years, the residue of the four years that we've spent disagreeing astonishingly about objective truth from the moment that uh, the Trump administration said it had the biggest um, inaugural crowd in, in, in history, which was not true, uh, to, the, to the moment when it says that it won the 2020 election, which is not true. It's been four years of assaults on, on objective truth and, um, and polls, if we're still going to believe polls, and I wonder if we can, um, two thirds of the 73 million people who voted for Donald Trump believe that he, that the 2020 election was rigged somehow and that he won. So I think future administrations are stepping into a very scary abyss, which is greater than the sum of the parts of whether the, the equilibrium and the goodwill, the, the basic goodwill between the press and the president can be restored, or at least mutual respect. Because I think now we've created a toxic environment that is going to be very, I don't think there's any vaccine for that kind of toxicity. No, but there is hope. And I think the uh, your book uh, gives some points in that direction. And it, it's, it's a, it's a fine book. Thank you. Harold, Thank you. and I'm, I'm, I appreciate your talking about it with us today, and thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Always brings out new things to talk to you, and I appreciate the opportunity. All right. We've been talking today with Harold Holzer about his new book, The President vs. the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.